Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing, changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, May the 4th, 2016. This is episode 1779 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Wednesday, that means we generally have an interview set up. And we have an interview set up today uh, with John Moody. John Moody is the executive director of the Farm to Table, Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, which is the organization that is out fighting for the rights and freedoms of small farmers and for individuals to have food. Freedom. In other words, the way I put that is John's a guy that's out there leading the charge to fight for the innate human rights that we all should have that we should not have to fight for. I think that Americans should be able to choose where they get their food from. And if you want to buy food that I produce, you should be able to. And if somebody else wants to buy my food, they should be able to. And if you don't want to buy it, you shouldn't have to. And if you want to rely on the mainstream industrial food complex, go ahead. But leave the small producers the hell alone. They don't want to leave us alone. And it's because, well, when you grow a monopoly to a certain size, and there's just these little pieces out there where people are clinging on and not part of your monopoly, it's all fun and games and it's all okay until you reach a plateau of your monopoly. Once you reach that plateau, when you're in a corporate world where you have to grow by a certain percentage every year, And that little 15% of the market or 10% of the market over here just won't give up. you got to destroy them. I believe there's a war on our freedoms right now, folks. I do. On a lot of our freedoms. But if we don't have the freedom to choose where and how we get our food, what freedom do we have, if any at all? We need people like John and his organization. He's here to tell you about the threats that we're facing today, some of the worst ones some of the encouraging things and what you can do to help preserve and reclaim your freedom and your right to decide what you eat and who you get it from. If you don't think that's a survival topic, try living a day without something to eat. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode to get some perspective historically. We can use that throughout the day and throughout our lives. Today, 1779, because the episode is 1779. Alex Shrugged has the following for us today. Beware the man with one gun. We also have Peggy Mary's Benedict Arnold, not Hitler. And a little more, a couple uh, little bullet points. Uh, Benedict Arnold is court-martialed for possibly cooking the books during his Quebec campaign. He will later be absolved but all but two minor charges, but he begins negotiations with the British to sell out the Continental Army for 10,000 pounds, a fortune. His new wife, Peggy, is expensive to keep. We also have John Paul Jones has not yet begun to fight. He takes the HMS Serapis as his prize. The man is a winner and maybe insane. I think sometimes you need to be insane to win a war. Of the two main subjects, I'm going to read Beware of the Man with One Gun because I just like that concept. I always have Beware of the Man that Carries Only One Gun because he might know how to use it. On the 5th of July on a hill overlooking New Haven, one man, one gun, facing the British in defense of his students in his sacred honor... Reverend Daggett's black robes wave in the breeze as he loads and shoots. He is the former president of Yale College, founded in 1701 as, quote, an act of liberty, end quote. 
100 students from Yale fire into the British leading elements. The British are forced back until the students top the ridge and look down the barrels of 2,000 British regulars. The students turn and run, but the Reverend will not run. He loads and shoots and loads and shoots. A British patrol finally locates the Reverend on the hill. They shout, Old man, what are you doing firing on His Majesty's troops? Reverend Daggett replies, I am exercising my rights of war. The Reverend is marched through town, beaten and bloodied from bayonet wounds until the Crown Loyalists take responsibility for him. The British push forward, terrorizing the countryside into submission. My take by Alex Shrug. What we consider an atrocity today with standard operating procedure in these days, there's a lot of disfiguring of bodies, tarring and feathering, severe beatings and hangings. Frankly, bayonetting and force marching an old man through town seems fairly outrageous. Those were the times that tried men's souls, and some of those souls came up on the minus side. That happens a lot in war. That is why the military is so fussy about rules of engagement, why chaplains are so important in the military. The clergy used to be out in the field with the troops, carrying a weapon and demonstrating when one should shoot and when one should not. Now we schedule the, seclude the clergy from war as if their only function is to pray for victory. Well, there are actually a few religious people in Israel set aside for that function, but the rest of them, rest of them pick up a weapon and take watch. My take by Jack Spierko on this. First, I want to point out that in 1779, students from Yale stood face-to-face -face with the British Standing Army, fired on them multiple times, and chased the advanced force back to the top of the ridge. Now, it's true that when they looked down and realized they were outnumbered 20 to 1, being intelligent people, because Yale students would be, they hauled ass. You know what, though? They stood their ground. They didn't require a safe space. I'd kind of like to point out that we have students at Yale University that recently threw a hysterical fit, sit-in, called for the head of a professor that lived on campus with them because his wife sent out an email that basically said, if you see a Halloween costume that offends you, well, once you talk to the person wearing it, find out what's really going on and try to solve it for yourself, you are now in college and considered an adult, and you should be able to handle that. They threw a hysterical fit over it and wanted to expand their safe spaces. Oh, how far we have fallen from the roots that we have in this nation. It's, it's, it really is a, a sad thing. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. And with that, let's get right into it with our special guest today, John Moody. John is a husband, a father of four, a small farmer, an author, and a speaker. And he is the current executive director of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. He's here today to talk to us about food freedom, farming freedom, the threats to those things, and what we can do about those threats. With that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
Great. Thank you so much for having me. John, um, you are the executive director of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. That's what we're here to talk about today. I've kind of prepped the audience already. They kind of know the basic mission of what you guys do. Um, but how did you end up doing this? Like, take us back before this was your whole world and you were all in on it, you know, when you were just kind of learning yourself or, you know, I, I imagine when you were like eight years old and throwing paper spitballs at your friends at school, you weren't thinking, one day I'm going to grow up and fight for farmers. Like, how did you end up where you are now? Well, that's a really good question, especially because had you met me at eight years old or even at 18 years old, you would have thought I was the least likely person ever to be doing what I'm doing today. And I don't think that's an understatement. When my family sees the way I eat today hmm. and kind of what I'm into they're flabbergasted. I had like four food groups as a child. Fruity pebbles, sugar, <laughs> cookies. No, no, seriously, I was one of the pickiest eaters. Um, I, you know, like I've still never even drank coffee or tasted standard pizza. Um, I was a super picky eater. I, I was your standard American video game playing. TV watching, junk food eating person, just as standard as standard could be. Um, only probably even worse because I, I really focused in on eating junk and crap. And in my early twenties, um, that caught up with me in a huge way. I, I was in my early twenties working on a master's degree and I developed a condition known as duodenal ulcers and Duodenal ulcers are fabulous. It's like taking Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, inviting them to live in your gastrointestinal tract, and then hooking them up with razor-sharp pickaxes, crack cocaine, and Metallica music. Sounds fun. Oh, yeah. It's just like you're being ripped apart from the inside out by a wandering band of crack-induced gnomes. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I'm in my early 20s, and I have, like, terrible seasonal allergies, and I got dental decay, and now I have duodenal ulcers. And I'm like, man, you know, so I go to my doctor, and um, my doctor looks, and he says, oh, you know, like, this is no big deal. And, you know, my eyes kind of roll to the side, like, you know, being in constant chronic pain in my early 20s is no big deal. He goes, hey, man, we have medication for this. You know, like, we'll put you on this medication. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, well, what does this medication do? <laughs> and he pulls out the insert, and it's like something out of one of the old Looney Tunes cartoons because, he, like, he opens the insert, and it starts to fold, and it opens, and it falls, like, from his hand onto the floor and starts rolling across the office, and it's like, you know, Point one font serif where he has to pull out a magnifying glass. And he's like, oh, he's like, eh, eh. he goes, well, it looks like it shuts off your body's ability to produce hydrochloric acid. And I was like, man, like, I I'm an Avenger or I'm like an X-Men. Like, I produce hydrochloric acid. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and I look at the, look at the guy. I'm like, wait, I'm like, if my body produces hydrochloric acid, isn't that important? Like, it isn't the problem, not that my body's doing what it's supposed to do, but something else. And the doctor had no good response to that basic question. He, he, you know, he was taught to use pharmaceuticals to treat symptoms of problems, not to figure out the cause of problems and move me back to health and, you know, whatnot. Um, and so my, she was my fiance, now she's my wife. 
we kind of embarked on a, a journey down the endless rabbit hole where, um, you know, we, we began to ask, well, like, what is causing me to be so sick as a 20 year old? And that led us to reading some books on food and nutrition, um, books like Sally Fallon's Nourishing Traditions, Weston A. Price's Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, um, and some other great books. And that led us from shopping at Walmart and oh, Sam's Club and Kroger to shopping at Whole Foods and Wild Oats, um, which led to our gateway drug of buying raw milk and doing a CSA box, and things just have constantly snowballed from there. As over the course in, over the course of about a decade, we went from being a perfectly standard American family to being a semi-off-grid bunch of lunatic hippies living on thirty acres in the foothills of Kentucky, um, raising our own food and, and fighting with the government on and off. <laughs> That's unbelievable, John. So, um, and now, you know, you mentioned fighting with the government, and that is a big part of what, unfortunately, small food producers and consumers that want to buy food that they know their farmer uh, has produced are doing today. I mean, that's, I don't think that's what we should be doing today, but it's what we are. Um, so what are some of the most common legal issues uh, that small farmers and homesteaders, frankly, are trying to grow our own food are coming up against today? Yeah. Well, it's, it's really sad to see how much energy and effort various government agencies and regulators are putting in to harming kind of the local food economy and, you know, turning a blind eye to the rampant abuse and damage that the industrial food economy is doing. Um, and, and you know, there, there's a lot of different things going on. One of the ones that's been really egregious that we've been watching over the past couple years it is a rise in animal abuse allegations and harassment of farmers, um, especially small pasture-based farmers, um, in terms of who are raising animals on pasture, who are not keeping them confined in cages. Um, and they're not just being harassed by the government, like the case of Joshua Rockwood of Westwind Acres, but they're also being harassed by kind of these radical animal rights activists. Um, so I don't know if you've heard about there's a farm. I think it's in like Rhode Island or somewhere. And, you know, it's like a it's a cool little farm set up. It's a, a multi-generation farm. And they have like an education program um, where, you know, kids can come and learn about the animals and pet the animals. And this par farmer... Like this mom came with a group of people and they petted the animals and she got wind that one of the older cows was going to be butchered. Yeah, I did hear about that. I think it might have been like Long Island, New York or something, somewhere up there in the Northeast where all yeah. stupidity comes from. Oh, man. And, <laughs> and, and, and you, you think about this, though, where like, you know, she got wind that this animal, instead of being allowed to die of old age, which we all know is so much fun. Um, or, or, you know, like, like you and I farm and yeah. it, it, the animal rights people kill me because they're like, well, you shouldn't kill chickens to eat them. I go, yeah, because, you know, when raccoons kill chickens in my flock, it is just merciful and kind in so many ways as they pull the head off of the chicken. While you know, I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me, people. You know, so this woman, though, 
has basically organized an endless um, parade of hate against this farmer for giving an animal an honorable death after it has led a good life. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, it's so sad to see. It's so sad as farmers, we have to deal with this. Um, you know, but farmers just have to be aware that not only now, especially in some states, um, regulators are coming after you. Um, I believe it's in Oregon. Um, uh, you'll love this. It's insanity. Um, but in Oregon, there is, I believe it's in Oregon or Washington, there is a government prosecutor who is paid, his salary is paid for by a private radical animal rights group. Huh. So this is a government employee. He has all of the power of the government, police, and judicial state, yet he is funded by a private organization with a clear agenda to stop people from eating animals. I mean, that's the very definition of fascism. Oh, it, it's, it is. It's I mean, you, you, people think fascism is you put people in concentration camps, and that's like that's like saying that like uh, uh, Volkswagen is a car a hippie drives, right? Some hippies drive <laughs> Volkswagens, but not all people that have Volkswagens are hippies. Like fascism is an economic, socio-economic, governmental system, and the collusion of government and 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 private industry as such to control the masses, like that is fascism. And I know people get reactionary over that word, but I don't have a better word for it. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's definitely terrible. Oh, it's ecofascism. There we go. That's a better word for it, right? It's uh, or non-ecofascism. It's it, it's insane. No, but, and, and, yeah, and what kills me though, like if we want to talk animal abuse, you know, why aren't people doing more about the CAFOs? Sure. It, you know, like you would just think, like if if we're really worried about the welfare of animals, the off farmer who's doing a poor job feeding or caring for his animals is a drop in the bucket of widespread abuse of animals in the American food and farming system. That's considered normal and acceptable and the way things are supposed to be, by the way. We have we have pigs that are in cages where they can't stand up or turn around, and you're worried that an old dairy cow is going to be butchered. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you just wonder – how insulated people are because you think that this lady, if she gave a, a, a damn as much as she claims to, if you showed her one picture of a CAFO, she wouldn't have time to bother these people anymore. Oh, exactly. So, you know, like, why isn't she, why isn't she organizing people to hate on KFC or something and, and not this poor little, um, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. You know, so animal abuse is one thing. Um, I think if you're a small scale producer, especially depending on where you are in the country. Um, it, it's definitely more of a coastal issue. Um, you know, it, it's something that's happening more in, you know, New York and in Oregon and Washington than it is kind of, you know, in more red states through the center of the country. You know, like here in Kentucky, um, maybe other than like in some of the urban centers, I've never ever once heard of a farmer um, being harassed over animal welfare or something, but it's a real problem for listeners who are in some of those bluer parts of the country and especially in some of these states where the animal welfare regulations are being pushed and are being written by these groups. Well, so, you have people writing regulations that don't, they don't know anything about animals. They don't know anything about animal husbandry. They don't know anything about farming. They don't know anything about nutrition. 
they're, they're writing regulations based on emotion and anamorphism, right? Like they're assigning human attributes and human mentalities and human things to animals. It's like a Disney generation because they saw the, the, the cow talk on the Disney cartoon. <laughs> no, it really seems like that to me because I remember about a year or two ago there was a farmer that was attacked. I think it was in New York State because his pigs were out in the snow. Yeah, it was Joshua Rockwood. Yeah, the yeah. pigs like to be in the snow. There's the, trust me, we have six and a half million wild pigs running around in Texas. <laughs> Contrary to what people believe, it does snow here, and it doesn't kill them all. They don't die. They don't run away. They like it. Yeah. They like it better than the heat of August, I promise you that. Well, and, and this is where, like, for listeners, the, the thing we really need to care about is Joshua recently sent me some emails from the training being given in New York oh. about what animal husbandry and stewardship should look like. And a lot of the standards are insane. Um, it, it's just like you can tell these standards are being written by people who either don't know farming or – they're, or the only people who are getting a voice in these standards are industrial farms. Mm. So, you know, like one of the things I saw that stood out is that like, um, you know, for young beef animals, part of the welfare standards is they should be given non-grass-based feed. Like, uh-huh. and if you're not giving them non-grass-based feed when they're young, you know, these standards would say you're abusing that animal. Let me let me explain just so people can understand exactly how this stuff works. It works both in private and, and, and public sectors. I'll admit to the fact that I used to do it in a much more benign way, but I used to be regional sales vice president for a company called Fluke Networks. We sold network test equipment. And what we would do is we would work in collusion with a consultant on a job to specify what type of testing needed to be done. Uh, at the end of a, of an installation. And we would work with that consultant to ensure that the specification written was literally the specification for our equipment. This guaranteed that when, whatever company won the job would have to buy more equipment to do the job with. Now, that may be a little bit nefarious, but I wasn't putting anybody out of business and it was no government involved. But this is the same modus operandi and you know, part of permaculture, as you know, is pattern recognition. So I recognize this pattern every time I see it. What you have is is these companies uh, usually masquerading when they do it outside the public sector or lobbying the public center, sector indirectly, masquerading as like grassroots. You know, the you know down here in Texas we have it's like the Texas Beekeepers Association or something, and it sounds like a bunch of people like me with a few hives in their backyard. No, it's it's the big APRs, <laughs> right? And it's like they were worried about safety and, and and things like that. And what they're trying to do is force out the small producer who doesn't you know cook their honey. And it's it's this, and they go in and they say that basically they represent all the beekeepers in Texas. Well, no, you don't. You represent the small handful of beekeepers, and it's the same pattern. We'll write the regulations that specify to do things the way we're already doing them, and and that puts everybody else out. And what I said in, in the show today before you came on was, I think part of what's happening now is that in this corporate world these people live in. You have targeted growth rates you have to make every year. You absolutely have to. 
So all of us small producers that have been around forever and a day have been this little tiny slice of the pie, and they've pretty much been like, yeah, you know, it, 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 it shows that we're not a monopoly, they don't really hurt anything, but now they've gobbled up so much of the pie themselves, they're struggling for that required corporate growth that we have in, in this economic system, and now you got to get it wherever you can, so let's squeeze these people out. That's what it feels like to me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's amazing. I was on a show a little bit ago uh, on an economics podcast, and I was pointing out that you look at, you know, like look at the three major meats consumed in America, beef, chicken, and pork. R roughly 80% of all beef, chicken, and pork consumed in America is controlled by three to five companies. Yeah. So It's, where do you get your growth with, when you're in that situation? Well, and not only that, though, they are terrified of people like you and me. Sure they are. They, they are – they, um, a few years ago, I was working on a bill here in Kentucky with some friends. and It was a real simple piece of legislation um, that basically said if somebody has an ownership interest in an animal, then the government in Kentucky – can do no interference in terms of what the person does with that animal hmm. in the sense of like, you know, if I'm a partial owner in a cow or I'm a partial owner in a chicken and I want the farmer to butcher it on my farm for me, well, the farmer can do that. Sure. Instead of it having to go through the alphabet soup inspection butchering agencies yeah. and stuff. And as part of that legislative process, um, me and some of my friends were told that we needed to meet with other stakeholders, um, you know, meaning people who would be affected by our legislation. Yeah. And like in an ideal world, the, the biggest impact our bill would have had in Kentucky, somebody said, was like maybe one half of one percent. Sure. Maybe. And that would be like in an ideal world. If, if, if our bill had its maximal impact on the food farming economy in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and behind closed doors, we were physically threatened by the people we met with from the industrial food industry. Because they're – and they are afraid because that's – if you had that effect, that in itself is not that huge. Except when you're starting to measure your growth rates by 2% a year, it is, right? Because it weeds away on it. But this is what I think they're really afraid of. Their food's gotten so crappy. It's <laughs> so terrible. No, it really has. That when a person actually experiences the, 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 the way real food's supposed to taste again, it's so dramatically different that it increases demand over time exponentially. And they're afraid of a, a big time full swing in the other direction because I'll, I'll tell you all I gotta do to sell somebody on pastured poultry is go get Tyson or Purdue or whatever a package of chicken from the store and get some pastured poultry that's been freshly butchered and just say, here, smell this. Right. That I mean, that's literally all it takes. I mean, if anybody listening still buys your chicken from supermarkets, next time you open a package of chicken, give it a whiff. Yeah, sm and, smell the the remnants of the triple chlorine fecal bath. Yeah, and it, I mean, it stinks. It, it if it just smelled like chlorine, that'd be one thing. But you're talking about the fecal bath. That's exactly what it is. And I read one time that an independent test was done on chicken from supermarkets. Twenty four percent was infected with salmonella. Twenty four percent. Yeah, well, you're, you're speaking about consumer reports is who did the testing and, and their testing was great because what they found, if I remember correctly, is roughly three quarters of samples 
came back positive for pathogenic bacteria. Oh, great. That's good. And, and half of those samples tested positive for antibiotic-resistant strains. Oh, beautiful. That, that's just great because you know what I heard today? The CDC's come out and told doctors to stop prescribing antibiotics that are not necessary. Oh, wow. Like they get four years to do it. Well, wouldn't you think they'd say, you know what? It's not necessary. Don't do it. Yeah. Well, but what's even worse though is human antibiotic consumption in America is fractional compared to yeah. livestock. And, you know, like, so it's like straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You, you well, know, I'm sure you know that there's people now that are saying their chickens are antibiotic free, but they're injecting the egg with antibiotics before the chicken hatches. Yeah, I I, th I thought that was quite cute, and it, well, and that's what kills me is like as a small producer, if you if you have a small slip up or you violate some small law or regulation, you often are going to be hammered. The SWAT team sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and whereas, you know, these big producers, they're routinely having to recall millions of pounds of contaminated product um, or, or come clean about, you know, oh, yeah, we poisoned a whole watershed or, yeah, there's yeah. arsenic or um, and, and nothing happens to them. You know, it's just, you know, like. And so, you know, another good, you know, since we're here to talk about kind of just threats small producers need to be aware of, um, you know, depending on how you're doing your distribution and stuff, um, like take the Mark Baker case in Michigan. I don't know if you followed his case. Yep. He was the hog farmer. Um, you know, raising heritage breeds and other things um, – can very quickly be outlawed arbitrarily by some of these state agencies because they might become a feral hog problem is the is the claim that they used on on that in Michigan if I remember right yeah exactly you know e even though the pigs were basically like you know you could walk up and pet these you know pigs yeah. um, and they're somehow you know going to go crazy and overpopulate Michigan and I don't know. Um, maybe start eating the politicians, which might help the state since it's ranked like dead last in terms of corruption. Well, and what gets me about that, right? So it was like, okay, what we need to have are these non-heritage pigs because they're not going to go feral. I mentioned we have six and a half million feral pigs here in Texas. The majority of the stock of the feral pigs in Texas come from standard what you'd call pink pigs. Now, they don't stay pink for very long. One or two generations, they start to revert because the ones with colors, you know, it's just natural selection. Yep. But it's not like only, you know, uh, Berkshires or something that will go feral. Pigs will go feral way quicker than cattle will. That's a management issue, not a breed issue. But if you are, you know, big food, if you're Smithfield and you want to put small producers out, well, they're not generally raising the type of hogs you are. They're looking for the niche markets. They're going to sell at a premium. So, That's just an easy way to trick some dumbass lawmaker that doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground, let alone what a pig is, that this is for his own good, especially when you're buying him a bunch of shit and lobbying him. Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, what happened, especially in Michigan, was the agency who banned heritage breed pigs in the state, in the state, um, it had a financial incentive on a number of levels. It, it kind of joined forces with Michigan's, um, pork producers 
the the CAFO pork producing industry in a little I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. The DNR makes a lot of money from selling hunting passes. Sure. And they were losing money to these private hunting reserves. And, you know, the, the confinement pork industry was feeling fear that, you know, more and more people want, you know, pigs that are not raised in gestation crates and, and are not, you know, being docked and having all these other tortuous things done to them for them to have pork. And, and so the DNR and the pork producers got together basically to eliminate each other's competition with one stroke of the unelected pen. Um, and, and it was just, it was terrible. So terrible What's to see that. I mean, from my understanding, Mark kind of gave up and and leave it. Uh, well, you know that case was complicated. He, the, the case was going to trial, and eventually, um, the DNR dropped the case. They they finally walked away. Um. So. Mark had won some earlier victories along the way in terms of how the case was unfolding. But at some point, the DNR just finally dropped the matter and walked away. Mark has continued to be harassed hmm. um, in a number of different ways to where I believe now, um, you know, because what the DNR did is, you know, when you're a small farmer, you're heavily reliant on your markets, you know, the way you distribute your product. And Mark was selling, you know, this really high quality, beautiful pork to a number of, um, kind of boutique, higher end outfits, restaurants, some stores and things. And basically the DNR and the Michigan government threatened his outlets. Oh, good to God. pressure him. Well, well, yeah, you know, it's just like, um, well, but you know, that, that's how this game is played. I mean, I mean, this is how the mafia works. You know, they don't just threaten you, but they threaten to break your girlfriend's knees as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so Mark has converted his farm to a learning center for veterans, um, to try and just, you know, finally de-escalate this multiple year battle. Um, so, cause you know, like, um, what, you know, you're asking earlier how I fell into this. What really got to me, to me into my role with farm to consumer is, you know, my wife and I went from shopping at standard grocery stores to shopping at farmers markets. Um, and from there we started a buying club. Um, cause we realized there were some problems with getting food at the farmers markets. There's items we wanted that we couldn't get at the farmers markets. Yep. Yeah. Like raw milk. Yeah, I mean, for instance, when I lived in uh, Arkansas, there was a guy I used to buy pasture poultry from. And one day I was like, you know, I'd, I'd really like to buy some rabbits. And it was the Hot Springs Farmer's Market. There's no rabbits here. He goes, oh, I sell rabbits. I said, well, bring some next week. I'll buy them. Oh, I can't. you got to come to the farm to get them. Yep. I'm like, now, really? And, and, and that's the type of thing that you were trying to solve. So you're, you kind of set together a club where we'll take the orders, we'll get everything and deliver it, right? Exactly. And, and so we started this buying club and the Kentucky State Health Department raided us. Um, <laughs> they, they served us with cease and desist orders and quarantine orders. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the movie Farmageddon. I have. Um, 
you know, th- this would have been, I think it was 2011. So it was right during that period of time where, you know, Mana Storehouse in Ohio, Rossum in California, Athens locally grown in Georgia, all these different groups had basically been raided and lost and shut down and broken up. Um, and we were the first group in the country to be raided and win. Oh, wow. And, and so we, we were the first kind of private food distribution option who the government came after us and we went toe to toe and walked away the victors. Um, and so that's what, you know, I became a board member of Farm to Consumer not too long after that. Um, and then it was about, I guess, 18 months ago, I stepped down from the board to become executive director. So when I talk about these things, um, you know, I, I've been right there myself sitting at home on a Friday night wondering if I'm going to go to jail. Yeah. You know, with, we, we had a brand new baby, not very old at that time. Um, and, you know, thinking like, am I really willing to go to jail over my food rights, o- over deciding who's going to, who's going to decide what me and my family can eat and who we get it from? And sometimes it's completely false allegations. Uh, we had a, a family or a, a small little community down here that had bought a place and was homesteading it with a, several families living on it. And, uh, their neighbor didn't like that their place looked kind of trashy in their opinion anyway. But they really weren't breaking any laws with that. They weren't doing anything actually illegal. But they kept complaining, uh, and they're saying these look like a bunch of dope smoking hippies. Well, <laughs> this this Arlington police officer that apparently took an interest in this decided to get a dope warrant, ran a, a dope warrant, uh, and said that they had visual confirmation of marijuana on the property. Now, when this happens to some stoner that doesn't know what okra is, it's funny, but when police do it, it's not. And what they, they said they saw was marijuana was okra. Man. And they went in and they, they, then they, once they were in there, they brought code enforcement in and they, you know, they nitpicked every little thing and, and sided them with a whole bunch of stuff and basically tried to force them out and they were unable to. They did have to get rid of some of the materials that they had for recycling and stuff like that. But with things like that, I'm right now, I've just finished my quail aviary. We're putting shade cloth on it. And I ended up with this 50-foot piece of shade cloth that won't really work for the aviary. So I'm like, well, right next to it, I could build basically, and I live in Texas, so 50% shade is perfect for growing vegetables. Yep. Uh, this is like 5 billion degrees. So I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to put this in. Well, the first thing I thought is they're going to think I'm growing pot. <laughs> and as a self-defense mechanism, the, the sheriff's got uh, jurisdiction here, and I know several of the deputies. I'm gonna when I put it in, I'm gonna have them over and walk them through it, just because that's the kind of thing that if somebody wants to shut down a small producer, they'll leverage any asset of the state to get it done. And if they can't do anything directly, they do indirect things like that, like say, hey, look, that guy's he, he's got a shaded thing back there in the back hiding behind his barn. He might be growing pot back there. You should get a warrant and go look at it. And they'll harass people. And and it, to me, a farmer has enough to do. You know, trying to make a living off the land is not the easiest thing in the world than to be fighting all these legal battles. And that's why it's great that there's organizations like yours to help. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to pick up on what you just said because it's important for homesteaders and farmers to realize in our tracking of these things, 90% roughly of the time, you are going to have a problem. It is going to be instigated by a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I have a whole talk I give on how to be a good neighbor 
um, as a farmer or homesteader, I go over what I call the four S's, smells, sights, and sounds, and space. Um, but, but it's, it's very important to, to realize having good relationships with your neighbors, um, you know, going the extra mile sometimes, even if it's a little bit of a pain in the butt, and even if you don't have to, can, can save you from a world of hurt and trouble. The, the only issue there is a lot of times I've found, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you'll have a person, they have their direct neighbors and maybe a couple over, they have good relationships with them, and the person that complains lives a mile down the damn road, but they drive by and see it, and they don't like it, and, and then it is a complaint-driven process. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good question, kind of how often that happens versus more direct. In in my experience, um, it's usually somebody a little bit more direct. Okay, uh, but you know, like, but it, but at the end of the day, if you're somebody who's building a farm or homestead and you have a lot of road frontage, investing in a good, um, you know, good privacy um, planting, some kind of you know ecosystem valuable mm-hmm. permaculture approach to giving you privacy and protecting your you, you know your place from prying eyes would be something I would build into my design and budget. Yeah, we just planted locust trees across the entire front of the property every two feet. How much land do you have? Just three acres. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, like, road frontage is nice, it has advantages, but one thing we looked for when we bought our property is we're down a side road, down a dead-end road, down a dead-end gravel road, down a gravel driveway. (laughs) Yeah, we're, like, on a main road, but I've got one actual neighbor that's actually, like, there, like, you know, on our fence line. The other one lives way to the back. Uh, my other side is a dilapidated lot with three burned out mobile homes on it. So before you can bitch about anything I'm doing, go fix that. I do hope to buy that someday, but that guy's smoking crack and thinks it's worth like ten times what that land's worth. Oh man! But we kind of hit it perfect where we're at the what you'd call the uh, urban rural fringe. We're in an urban area, but I'm 25 minutes from downtown Fort Worth at the same time, and we're in an unincorporated part of the county. And in Texas. That's basically if you ain't cooking meth, nobody bothers you. I mean, well, it really is kind of where we're at. And my hope, though, is you know, there's towns around us, little like just down the road, a half a mile. There's a little town called Lakeside, and that place is like the city is an HOA. And if they ever try to annex us, I've got neighbors. We'll be on the roof with AR-15s. We're not having it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, and, you know, you know, and this is another big threat for. Um, homesteaders, small farmers is, um, zoning, you, you know, the ever expanding reach of zoning and planning and, and homeowners associations. Um, so, you know, so like, cause partly, you know, before you buy land, you really want to do due diligence in terms of are there, you know, easements, are there deed restrictions? Mm-hmm. Um, a good example is, the property we bought um, before before we signed and closed on the property, I was going over the deed, and I noticed the deed restriction. The deed had language that said no poultry or pigs mm. allowed. 
Now, the, and you know, I was talking with you know the, the the people at the bank and some other people involved with us buying our land, and, and the person was like, "Well, they're like that doesn't actually mean no pig or poultry. It just it, it was put in there so that nobody could buy the land and build a CAFO." Okay. But but the problem is it's still separate. that's not what it says. Yeah. Like like that's not what it says. It literally says no pigs or no poultry. And so anybody, you know, if somebody got a little ticked with us, they they merely would have to pull the deed and say, "Dude got a hundred chickens." Like he has, you know, like he, he has, has all these animals that are in violation of his deed. Um, and, and so before you buy land, you want to know like what is the zoning and planning in the area? Are there plans to expand the zoning and planning? So can we back up a second? So that's the property you ended up buying. So did you have it? That that restriction lifted on purchase, or did is that- yeah? I, I had the deed amended. Okay. So and I, I you know because like and I mean you know we were like right there we we were like we were at the altar the marriage altar yeah we're in the office on the day of the final signing signing and you know they handed me this and I was like y- you have to strike that or we have to amend the language because I will not buy a property um, and and so they they right there you know pulled all the people they needed into the room and. And they edited the deed, um, so because you do not want to, you do not want to buy into a property um, that's going to have easements, deed restrictions, zoning, or other things that you're going to have to fight on the backside. And we'll just let it say it goes without saying you don't want anything to do with an HOA. I mean that's, you know that's 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 about the only kind of HOA I'd see being valuable anymore is if a bunch of farmers got together did a farming community development and made an HOA that said nobody's allowed to bitch about farming that yeah. was, that's about the only way I'd see one of those working um and then there's the other side of things of course they'll attack the land itself but then like I can raise all the chickens I want here if I wanted to do pastured chickens I run primarily a duck operation and we sell mostly eggs right now um but one of the reasons I'm doing that is I don't want to spend my time butchering chickens. You kind of alluded to that earlier. And I have a place down the road that will butcher chickens for $3 a piece. They do a bang-up job, but I can't sell those chickens. And that, that's another hurdle that producers have because if you this is what I've found in business. I don't care whether it's the farming business or uh, entertainment business or whatever. People are really good at one or two things, and that's what they should spend the majority of their time doing. And a lot of times a good grower is really good at growing, but they're maybe not, you know, very good at processing. So they would be better off out tasking that task. But that's, you know, I can do it with beef. That's pretty easy. But poultry, because of the FDA regulations, is a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Well, you'd love this story. We, you know, we bought this farm a few years ago. We got beef cattle to raise and we just finally had two of them butchered. A couple months ago. So our first, you know, all grass fed heritage breed, you know, beef right off our own farm. And we took it to a local custom slaughterhouse. And my 10 year old daughter and I, you know, we went to pick up the meat when it was ready, bring it back, load it into a chest freezer. And, um, her and I are loading this meat into the chest freezer and she's looking at the label on the meat. And the label says, you know, not for sale. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, she goes, why does our meat say this? And so I I begin to explain to her as a 10-year-old how, you know, like, because we used our local butcher, his shop is impeccably clean. Yeah. um, His, you know, like, 
total transparency, total accountability. I can walk into his shop any day of the week, see exactly what's going on. Um, I, I go, you know, like we can't sell those cuts of meat to anybody. And she's like, well, dad, like we could have somebody over for dinner. And they could eat the meat that way. Yeah, yeah, they could come over for dinner. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, Dad, it, it's it's safe for us to eat. Yeah, yeah, it's safe for us to eat. And and oh, we could give it like as a Christmas gift to somebody or a birthday gift. We could give the cuts away. <laughs> like yeah, we, you know, we could give it away. Oh, totally okay. But, but but we can't sell it, Dad. Somehow magically, the moment we go to sell it, the beef becomes dangerous. You know what's even more ironic? Under I don't know about your state, but like our state, our cottage food law, if you turned it into stew and canned it, under our cottage food law, you could sell it then. But but wouldn't it have had to have gone through a USDA or state inspected facility first? Not under cottage food law in Texas. I don't think so, though. Maybe I could be wrong about that. But I believe the cottage food law, if the food is prepared in the, like the home kitchen and it, it's uh, it is just food. I don't think there's any kind of reach back to where the original source was. Yeah, I would be surprised if that's true. Cause I'll check in, that one. Yeah, in you Wyoming. Know than me because I'm not in that business. But yeah, in Wyoming, we worked with some of our members, and Wyoming was one of the first states in the nation now to pass basically food freedom legislation, um, which which does allow you to make things in your kitchen, do all these things that are currently illegal in most of the country, um, but but meat is specifically in almost every single state's cottage food rules exempted and treated differently. Um, wow. it, you know, meat's considered a potentially hazardous food in in the food regulatory parlance. And thus, it gets it gets all kinds of special attention and treatment. Um, the, yeah, but but you know, you bring up the butchering stuff. Another thing our organization is involved with, and you know, you all can go to our website farmtoconsumer.org and just type in the word Prime Act. But we partnered with Congressman Thomas Massey and have introduced the first ever rollback. To the federal meat inspection system. Awesome. And, and so, um, you know, we, we do a lot of education for our members. We litigate on your behalf. If you get into trouble, we have a 24 hour a day, seven day a week hotline where if an inspector shows up at your farm and you need apprised of your rights, you need an attorney to help you with that issue. We're there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, for our members. Um, But we also engage in lobbying and legislation. Um, And so we have a number of bills at the state and federal level um, that are trying to open up opportunities to level the playing field between small producers and large producers. Let me see if I understand what the Prime Act is trying to do. It's trying to say that, let's say, my state, the state of Texas, could say if I'm growing chickens in Texas, that Texas would determine whether or not a facility is viable for processing, and it would go to, if I remember reading it right, a facilities level inspection instead of like a, you know, everything that goes across the level inspection. So the, the state would, would set up their own program, and an inspector would randomly show up at a processing facility and inspect, inspect the facility itself, 
rather than because the way I understand it now, if I wanted to set up a USDA approved chicken processing plant here in Texas, I pretty much have to pay the full time salary and benefits of the federal inspector and give him office space at my location. Oh yeah, yeah. So the Prime Act would even go a, the Prime Act in a nutshell. What it'll do is right now states have little choice how meat inspection is treated. Um, so, uh, so you know, let's do a quick overview of the meat inspection system. Um, if you want to take meat by the cut across state lines. Mm. It has to go through a USDA-inspected facility. As some of your listeners know, there are some states in the nation that have a handful or no USDA-inspected facilities available to small producers. Correct. So we have one member who lives, I believe, on like the Mississippi, some other state line. You know, he's right on the line, so he has to serve markets on both sides. But neither state has a, a USDA butchering facility he can use. So they're taking animals all the way to Tennessee. Um, you know, just imagine, you know, it's insanity. Um, so, so right now, if you want to cross state lines with individual cut meat, you have to go USDA. There are still some states in the nation who have what's known as a two-tier inspection system. Indiana, just north of us, is one of them, where they still have state inspection, which you could take an animal to a state-inspected facility and sell by the cut within your state okay. and sell by the cut in any venues that the state-inspected system permits. Okay. So you might be able to sell in a grocery store or at a farmer's market or a farm stand or a farm store. All of that's determined state by state. Gotcha. What the Prime Act would do is basically allow the states to go even further. And a state could even say in a direct farmer-to-consumer transaction, a farmer can butcher the animal even on their own farm without any inspection. Okay. Each state will get to decide for meat sales within their state – that are by the cut, how they want to handle it. I got you. Um, got you. And, and you know, Ma- Massey is kind of like you know a Tenth Amendment libertarian. That's why he likes this bill. It, it merely moves power back to the states for the states to decide. Which won't fix all the problems, but it will go back to the fifty laboratories of liberty where all of a sudden farmers start going, you know what? These ten states are really given us an opportunity so you have people that want to get into farming and god knows we need new farmers we need millions of new farmers in the next 20 years um gravitating toward going there and then they bring that revenue and that i mean honestly see i don't get it why these why the states aren't stepping up and just doing more and just affirming sovereignty anyway because when i look at this and i realize just the demand for poultry here in north texas you're talking about lots of jobs For people that work in this state or the people that would like to work in this state, if you can enable this, then lots of businesses and small business drives economies. And, and, and I guess I do get it because the big food lobbyists are just as active in Tallahassee and Austin and Cheyenne as they are in DC, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we've looked at some of the numbers of what they've spent 
you know, like in California a couple years ago, they had the whole like, let's give chickens 12 square inches or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And, and this is somehow hailed as progress. And over just that little battle, it was like tens of millions of dollars. Big food. We can't do it. Chickens will cost a thousand dollars a piece. The world will end. People will starve. KFC will go out of business. Can't give them a foot each. Yeah. Or, you know, you think about the Dark Act, which was defeated. Yes. Um, but, you know, I have some friends on Capitol Hill and they said they had never seen the lobbying arm so unified and mobilized mm. as pushing the, the, the Dark Act. You know, the, the, the GMO labeling blocking, you know, at the federal level stuff. They just said it was, it was unbelievable. The lobbyists were basically working 24 seven on behalf of the big food industry. Um, and you know, that's the challenge for us as a grassroots small organization is we are, we are pushing to get legislation passed against adversaries who spend in one day what our budget is for the entire year. Yeah, or more sometimes, I'm sure. Oh yeah, you know, so. It, so it, go ahead. Oh no, so it's, it's just been, it's been challenging, but it's been fun to get things done that really help small producers, even in an environment that's so challenging and adverse. Is there any movement in the right direction in the poultry world? Because that's to me a place where a lot needs to be done, because we do have the on-farm exemptions where you can self-process, but as I said, That is something a lot of producers would prefer not to actually do. Um, I took some turkeys down to my guy uh, last fall. We raised three turkeys for uh, Thanksgiving and the workshops we do here. And, you know, I bring the turkeys home. You talk about packaging. Well, they had a big old blue meat stamp on the side of the turkey that says not for resale. You know, yeah. right on the turkey's skin. That's nice. I spent all this time growing this completely natural turkey and, Uh, my guy, un unfortunately, has to stamp this whatever kind of freaking dye that is onto the damn, you know, skin. And to me, you know, I'm a small, I'm a really small producer. My podcast is my main business, but I have enough customers. We could raise a few hundred birds a year if I could get them processed. And to me, it's just not worth it otherwise. Is there any movement in that world? Well, you know, I need to look into um, it, kind of why... Um, I don't know much about Texas and, and Texas poultry rules. The way poultry works um, is there's what's known as the federal floor for, for poultry processing, where the federal government says you can butcher up to 20,000 birds per year on farm, um, you know, without inspection and stuff. Each individual state can be more strict but not less strict Correct. than the federal requirements. Correct. And, and so a lot of that really comes down to what is going on in your state of Texas. Um, and, and it's really hard to know what's going on in each of the individual states with poultry. You know, for me, when I hear a problem like that, the problem is the solution. Um, you know, I would start looking around in your area for six or eight other farmers And you're allowed to butcher on farm. Correct. And maybe six or eight of you go in together and build your own mobile butchering thing with on a trailer that you can pull from farm to farm. And, and you hire somebody who likes butcher, butchering birds 
That's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. Because it's such seasonal and short-term work, you know. It's not, you know, six, eight farmers aren't going to keep a person like that busy all the time. Yeah, but maybe – but like you, you know, like your your show is the podcast. There might yeah. be one of you six to eight farmers yeah. who really does like butchering, That's is true. good at it, and and then you're pouring your money into them. You all are investing money in your own capital and infrastructure that's going to bear returns, and and you make it mobile and portable so that it can go from farm to farm. And, and, and you know, it, like my buying club operates under this principle. Where are the gray areas? Where are the chinks in the regulatory armor that we can plant seeds that can grow? They can break the armor apart even more over time. Oh, I'll give you a gray area you'll like. So West Virginia, raw milk has been a huge battle. And there's been some movement in the right direction there. Well, but, actually, I think we just finally won. So we've been working with our members there. And I think this past legislative session, it, it's now finally blown open. But go ahead. But it's like cow share, right? It's still you can't – I don't think they got to where, like, I can sell raw milk. I, I don't think they got that far yet. But – before all of this movement in the last few years, it was one of the strictest states on raw milk that there was. You, they even outlawed, um, sh you know, cow shares. Yes. And they outlawed sell for use as pet food because there's yes. a lot of people they mark their stuff for sale as, you know, it's for, for dogs and cats, not for human consumption. And the, the wink, wink, nod, nod, and the guy buys it. And if you want to eat your dog food, that's up to you, right? And yep. you actually call me. <laughs> Of any obligation to, or uh, uh, you know risk because it wasn't supposed to be for you anyway. But West Virginia said you couldn't do that. Well, I know some people were selling raw milk in West Virginia and they were marketing it as a soil amendment <laughs> and specifically put on there that to use the product in a manner inconsistent with this labeling was a violation of both federal and state law. That's funny. And I'm not going to say who came up with that terminology, but you're speaking to them. <laughs> I mean, I, I always think you can work the gray areas to a degree, but the more successful you become at it, the more public you are with it, the 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 harder you get pushed back. But I mean, I'm all for working the gray areas. But yeah, but it does get you into the fly low or fly high mentality. Yeah, um, fly low works. What are some real threats we have? I mean, uh, I'm looking at your notes, and one of the things I've been really worried about is Food Safety and Modernization Act. With a caveat that I know John Tester, uh, not my favorite person in the world, but you know, it seemed like he did something useful. Um, put in, I thought his amendment that got that thing passed exempted farms doing under half a million dollars. Yeah, well, theoretically, it exempted farms doing under half a million dollars. Which, you know, first and foremost, like a half million dollars isn't that much money for a farm. No, because your like, margins are thin. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so um, even more so, though, um, there's there's many, many ways that the FDA has been whittling away at the Tester Hagen protections for small producers. Um, one of my great concerns looking at it is um, the issue of ch um, chain compliance. So you as a farmer – you, you might qualify to be exempt under Tester Hagen, but if you're selling to a restaurant or mm -hmm. you're selling to a grocery store, those stores, my hunches, are eventually going to be required to only work with people 
who are in full compliance with all of the FISMA. And, and so the exemption becomes meaningless because unless all you're doing is direct marketing, all of the places farmers sell to that, that help kind of give us greater volume, greater economies of scale, greater efficiencies, they could well force us into the FISMA anyway, which I don't know if you heard, but they released the produce rules a, a month or so ago. And just the produce rules were 700 pages. Jesus. Um, yeah, and that's dear and dear to me because some of our best customers for our eggs are restaurants. You know, they're, they're, they're selling featured dishes with, with, you know, an open-faced duck egg and things like that. And, and those sell well for them. We make a good profit on it. They have featured dishes. But you're right. They could go in and say, you have to have, that. you know, the, 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 the full compliance thing because the, the chain is ridiculously simple because that's that was part of the thing like if we have an onion show up in California and somebody gets sick we should be able to figure out where that onion came from well my egg with my farm's name on the carton that you only get eggs from one source sitting in your restaurant there's not a big chain of custody to figure that out i think the worst cop in the world could trace that chain of custody <laughs> but yet the paperwork that you would have to file to be uh you know, compliant with Food Safety Modernization Act is is insane for even that little transaction. Oh yeah, well, and and that's what kills me is you and I engage in a food system that has the greatest amount of safety, the greatest amount of traceability. When something does go wrong, it has the most limited impact and reach of in terms of the number of people affected. You know, like. Um, I guess it was it was a couple years ago now. Um, there was an accusation that our raw milk farmer um, that his milk had made somebody ill. Okay. Within three hours, we were able to let every single person in our buying club who had milk from him know about the accusation. Yeah. In the industrial food system, it is sometimes months. Before people are informed that they are eating listeria contaminated blueberries, yeah, or ice cream, bluebell, uh, yeah, uh, uh, or peanut butter, right? I mean, it, 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 that's a great point. And I mean, the other thing is when you have consumers eating stuff from small producers, they're generally people that are aware of where all their food's coming from. They don't have this artificial fake bubble of security, so people get sick all the time in the industrial food system, and they just know they got sick. Yeah. They don't know what they ate that was different. Right? So they ate 15 things that day. Well, what made you sick? Don't know. Right? Well, let's test it. Sorry, I ate it all. It's gone. You know, what have you. Where if, if somebody starts doing business with somebody and you're buying their eggs and you had eggs for breakfast that day and trust me, if you get sick with eggs, you've done something wrong. But <laughs> I mean, then you would know, okay, this traces back to here. It's pretty easy to figure out where I'm not so sure. That even with uh, food safety modernization, if you got sick from an egg out of an individual carton, you could tell me exactly where that egg came from. You can tell me where that batch of eggs came from. But there's so much intermingling there. And it does seem, I always, my knee-jerk reaction is to hate everything government does, period. Okay? Um, but I also look at their system, this giant food conglomeration system with a lot of toxic food in it, 
And I think when I look at food safety, I, I look at that and go, that tr that tracking, that ability to figure out where that food came from does make sense for that system. It doesn't make sense for the system you and I are talking about, though. Oh yeah, but but they don't they don't believe in any other system but their system. Of you course. know, of course. like they they espouse a one size fits all food system. And you know, Joel Salatin, um, he was telling me a story a couple months ago where he was in D.C. for some kind of you know some kind of symposium, and the, the people who are over the meat system got up to talk and they were bragging about how many butcher houses they got to close so that rather than there being, you know, 500 plants they need to inspect, now we're down to only 300 plants we need to inspect. So and, it's and that's easier. Yeah, like and that's their idea of victory. They would be happy with one massive butchering plant in Iowa surrounded by You know, 100 million cows surrounded by 100 billion pounds of corn. Yeah. In one, like, like that is their, that, that's their mecca. That, that is what, you know, the people who, who pull the regulatory strings, they want a highly consolidated food system that is easy for them to manage, supervise and control. Even if it kills all the farmers, even if it kills all the eaters, even if it kills the environment in the process. Well, you know, the same people that own Big Ag own Big Farm, uh, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're making people sick, that's just good business. Um, and if you're putting your competition out of business as a byproduct, well, that's even better. What about some of the scare tactics? I mean, you know, the thing with Chipotle, when that happens, see, look what organic does. And it's like that, that again, I felt like has nothing to do with what we do. Yeah, well, and now, you know, in terms of food safety, there's been a number of hit pieces recently. It might have been the New York Times actually wrote a piece about six weeks ago claiming that areas with more farmers markets had higher rates of foodborne illness outbreaks. Okay. Basically, you know, basically claiming like, you know, farmers markets are making people sick. Um, and, you know, I, I think some of our board are, are putting together a response that shows just how shady, shoddy and screwed up that whole line of reasoning and, you know, all, all the research was on that. Um, but I think as small producers, you know, just like with animal abuse or other things, um, this is why I just encourage people to become members of Farm to Consumer because we need to get ahead of the ball on these things. We need to begin to develop resources and develop messaging and develop tools that tell our side of the story from a, from an informed, factual place. You know, we need infographics and memes and things that point out, you know, like you want food traceability and safety. It's your local farm. You know, you're not going to get better food safety and traceability than you're going to get from the farmer down the street. Um, and begin to make that case in the court of public opinion rather than, you know, continuing to be hammered by the industrial interests and their lapdog government agents. You see, that's very near and dear to my heart because 
my my political views is primarily I'm a political atheist and classify myself as an anarchist. Um, and and I, I understand the art of war. And if you fight the enemy on his terms in general uh, situations, you will lose. Even if you have victories in battles, you'll lose the war. And I think that we have to move this battlefront to that court of public opinion where you can't just buy off votes in that world. When people start to actually do business with farmers and then they, they value that, and then when they hear the threat of it being taken away, it's not some weird, scary thing that they don't know anything about. You're now telling me, because I, I mean, I have people that come here that are, you know, fighting cancer. And I'm not saying duck eggs have anything to do with that, but they feel that eating that nutrient-dense food that we produce is helpful to them and their battle with cancer. And if you tell somebody like that you're going to take that away from them, well, they kind of take it personal. I have a family that buys about seven dozen eggs a month from us. They drive over an hour to get them because everyone else they found is just not the quality they're looking for. And they have two children that love eggs, and the lady bakes, and she likes to use eggs and everything, and they're allergic to chicken eggs. And the more we can have stories like that, the more you have a, a, a political resistance by the people versus you know lobbyists. And I'm not putting down what you guys do lobby because I think it's great, but I think you can only do so much on that front if that makes sense. Oh, I agree. Well, and you know, the nice thing is there's a lot more we can do at the state level than at the federal level. Sure. You know, like as Wyoming shows or as what's going on in Maine shows or, you know, take raw milk. Um, when our organization started a, a little over 10 years ago, um, raw milk was very hard to access in the majority of the country. You know, y you and I would see this. I see it very similarly to how concealed carry activists secured victory instead of working at the federal level you start with states that are soft targets and you push for change there because it's cost effective um, you know it's a place where you can really get stuff done and then you build on those victories you know you make it spill over from state to state and so you know you look at the history of concealed carry you look at the history of raw milk Those are really where we can do a lot of good. Um, and then at the federal level, we mostly just try and stop stupidity from happening as best we An can. An encroachment against the states that have stepped out and said, hey, we're doing this whether you like it or not. You know, the, the, the concealed carry thing or even open carry is a good example of how success in one state can be used to pressure lawmakers in another state. Texas just this last year passed open carry, and it's come to Texas. And you know what? The whole world didn't end. There were <laughs> stories, and the police chief of Houston was saying he spoke for all Texas gun owners, kind of like those B people. Same see pattern recognition over and over again. I'm sure he was getting a little money for his you know time speaking, and it passed, and the world didn't end. But a big part of what we had, like one group of legislators that were absolutely we should do this. We had the vehemently opposed, and just like the electorate, it's that middle that could go either way. Part of what pushed that middle over was. This is Texas. Virginia has open carry. If they can do it in Virginia, don't you think we can do it in Texas? Oh. And you start to, like, okay, well, let's look at Virginia. Let's look at Washington. Let's, let's look at states where they're already doing this. Is the world ending there? 
are, are, are children being drugged behind school buses over it? Or, you know, is, 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 you know, are people dying or, and no. And if, well, they can do it, then are you saying they're better than us? You know, using that, that kind of a, a pride thing. And I think that helps in that court of public opinion too, because I believe most people do have some pride in their state. I, I really do. And I mean, here, the Lone Star State is full of it. And if you can point out that we're restricted from doing something that other states are doing and it's, it's okay. World's not ending there. It starts to swing that opinion both at the legislature and in the, in the public. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, the, and that's really a big part of it. Like Wyoming passed their food freedom over a year ago. And now there's articles popping up, like you said, pointing out, oh wow, like the world didn't end. Yeah. You know, yeah. we were told, you know, Millions of people who live in Wyoming are going to die, and my friend was like, "Well, Wyoming doesn't even have millions." <laughs> I was just think of that. <laughs> um, and, and so, but you know, like, like there's been no uptick in foodborne illness. Yeah. There's been no, you know, there's been no reports of shady people and shady practices. Yeah. Um. It, it's and it's been a boon. It's been a boon to the state of Wyoming, and it'll continue because, as you said earlier, you know, you want to talk about economic development, where the future of economic development lies, isn't exporting all the wealth of our industry individual states to these transnational corporations, but it's freeing people to engage in business and commerce again locally, you know, in self-sufficient local communities. Yes, it's, it's, it's giving people the option to buy what they want that's also what they need. And what I mean by that is, so I've always taught people with small businesses, again, I don't care what industry it is, sell to the want, not the need, because when you sell to the need, you compete with the conglomerates. And they're going to beat you because they can, they can run on a one and a half percent operating margin and make billions of dollars. You can't survive on a one and a half percent margin. So what we can do is we take something like pork, which you can buy dirt cheap in the store. We go to a higher value, uh, animal. We sell it as a heritage breed. We sell it as tasting better. All the person has to do is eat one bite of it. And that claim is verified. And now we can, they're going to buy pork anyway, or they're going to buy beef anyway, or they're going to buy eggs anyway. Or they're going to buy herbs anyway. But now what they're doing is they're willing to pay a slight premium for it. And it really isn't that big a premium when you add it up across, you know, a total budget to do business with someone local, someone they know, and get better quality. So that money is going to be spent. And even though the consumer is spending more money per unit, if it's inside that local community and it doesn't exit, that local economy grows and everybody in that economy benefits And people start seeing this, this interaction between individuals in the community and start asking themselves, how can I participate in this? Because not everybody's going to be a farmer. It's hard work, as you know. But there's always something, you know, somebody can be the guy that fixes tractors, right? There's, there's people that are mechanics today that are working for some big company, hate their job, but they could be the tractor guy. And, and that's just one example. And there's hundreds and hundreds. And every time you create a, a, a new opportunity, That creates another inflow of, of capital. It creates another circular flow of capital. And that creates – and it's, it's, a, it's a self-replicating system. And it, it, it can be built around agriculture because – and this is what I teach with survivalism. You better grow food because you're going to eat every day. I mean, I, I call us hippies with guns here at TSP. But, you know, I've, I've been shot at exactly one time in my life. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like it. And I was even in a situation where I, I wasn't able to shoot back. I just had to take cover. But that's been once in my life. I've been in a few real fights in my life, but I've had to eat every day. And this is an intrinsic thing that's essential to human life. And if you can't build an economy on that, what the heck can you build an economy on? 
Yeah. Well, you'll love you'll love this quote from Joel. Um, he he once said because he's one he's one of our founding members, one of our biggest supporters. But he said, if you're a member of the NRA or like Gun Owners of America, and you're not a member of Farm to Consumer, you have your priorities wrong because you cannot, you know, food food is more important than firearms. Uh, you know, it you is. Can't, and and so you know, he would say, I'd say to your listeners, like, um, if what you just said is true. Then we are the organization for you all because we're the only ones who are working to equip and protect you to build those kind of alternative economies and to be able to farm and raise and grow your own food in an efficient, affordable manner. So can we, we kind of wrap up with that? How do people get involved? How do they learn more? And, and, and what's involved with supporting you guys? Well, you know, we're, we're a not-for-profit. We're a membership-based organization. Um, so if you become a member, we have memberships for homesteaders. We have memberships for farmers. And we have just plain memberships for consumers. And depending on what membership you get, you get different types of benefits. Um, you know, as a farmer and a homesteader, you get access to our 24-7 legal hotline and access to educational and some other resources. Um, you know, as a not-for-profit, people donate to us. Um, so we take donations. We take memberships. Um, so you can just go to our website, farmtoconsumer.org, see the types of things we're working on, um, You know, see the types of people who are members of our organization, and just encourage you to become a member and support our work. And by becoming a member, too, you help us um, frame and decide where we're going to go next. Um, you know, because the more members we have in different states, if you're excited about what happened in Wyoming and you want to see it happen in your state, become a member, get other people to become members, and, and then we can allocate resources and partner with you to get stuff done in your home state and make positive change for you and small farmers there. Awesome. I was trying to trying to beat the clock just to show how easy it was and I'm real close. Uh, I'm 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 signing up right now. I'm about 90% there. <laughs> it's a pretty easy thing to do. I'm signing up as a farmer level membership. Um because I do think what you guys are doing is are important. I was I was hoping to have it done. Um but I got to the, the long form and I couldn't quite beat you to where you were uh to you were you were getting there. But it is an easy thing to do and I recommend that you know everybody in this audience at least consider doing it. And you make a very valid point. You know, if you're an NRA member, you want to protect your, 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 you know, your right under the Second Amendment. I, I cannot think of what is a more fundamental, innate human right than the right to be able to produce food and to choose the food that goes into your body and choose where you get it from and from whom you get it from. I, I, I it, it boggles me that we have people chanting, chanting, you know, number one USA freedom, and, and we live in a society where that's even questioned. The, well, the, the concept that we could even have a question about that right, and I remember there was a judge, Wisconsin or Michigan or something like that, that, that ruled on the raw milk issue that you did not have a right to determine. He actually issued that as a legal opinion in a case. You do not have a right to determine what food goes into your body. And he ended up leaving his judgeship and now works as a lobbyist for freaking Monsanto. Yeah, he works for a law firm retained by Monsanto. Well, and, and you know, let's step back for a moment because that case was be that case we were involved with, I believe, and that case came about 
what that judge said came about because a number of years ago, we sued the FDA over the interstate ban on raw milk. And so wait till you hear this, Jack. In response to our lawsuit against the FDA, this is what the FDA said in writing. They said there is no absolute right to consumer feed children any particular food. They said that asserting that we have a fundamental right to our own bodily and physical health, which includes what foods we choose and do not choose to consume, is also unavailing because plaintiffs do not have a fundamental right to obtain any food they wish. Hmm. So the FDA has said in writing that we have no fundamental right to choose what we eat and what we feed our families. And that is what our organization is up against. And that is what we say, no, we actually do have that right. I mean, that's, again, I don't understand how we can live in a country that fancies ourselves as being free people and have a government tell the people that you don't have a right to choose what you consume and not have, a, frankly, an insurrection. Oh, well, I agree, and you know, <laughs> this is like I, it, it boggles me that people are not as passionate about our organization as they are about the NRA. Partly, I think it's just because people aren't educated. You know, I'll, you know, like my hunch is: Did you know the FDA had had the gall to say that publicly? Mm. You, you yeah. know, like so that's one of the reasons I wanted to be on your show because. We need to get this message out that, you know, the government is basically waging a war on small farmers and food rights. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars denying people the right to food, the right to grow it, the right to secure it, the right to process it. Um, and people need to wake up and become part of the solution like they did with the Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think again, I think we are at a point now where we have to turn the apparatus to the court of public opinion. And uh, I do appreciate the work you're doing, and I recommend that everybody get over to your website. Again, that is uh, farmtoconsumer.org, and I recommend you look at the uh, membership options, and uh, especially you guys that are homesteaders that are worried that someone's going to cause you a problem. These are your advocates, and and the more of us we have channeling our efforts into one location, the more power that has. Because what happens is they don't attack everybody at the same time because they know they would have an insurrection. They pick targets and they attack those targets or locally complaint-driven things target individuals. Well, if if you're targeting one person and you're the government and you have unlimited resources, it's pretty easy to put the kibosh on them. But if there's a couple million local producers, homesteaders, farmers, consumers banded together under an umbrella like farm to consumer, then it's a little bit bigger of a fight. And I think in a lot of cases, some of these smaller governments could actually be kind of backed down a bit when they realize the size of what, you know, is opposing them. If, if we have enough support and we, you know, guys, this is definitely one you need to talk to your friends about. Um, even your friends that like, we talk a lot about preparedness here and, and, you know, going to the, you know, beyond organic and stuff like that. Just, just, 
to anybody, though, you don't have to go that far with them. Just explain, hey, your right to choose your food, your right to buy from a local farmer is under attack. And there's, I mean, there's so much evidence. But one thing I'd like to have you speak on, John, if you could, before we wrap up, is my biggest problem with the Food Safety Modernization Act that was going on at the time that it was in legislation, I believe one of the reasons it was able to pass with so much in it, was the hysteria on our side. Not necessarily our side, but the resistance side. Because, I don't know if you remember, there was all this crap. They're going to take away your ability to barter tomatoes with your neighbor. They're going to make it illegal for you to save seeds. They're going to make it illegal for you to have a garden. And, and I was screaming at the time, we got to stop this because no one's going to listen to us. Because they're going to find out that's all BS. And I had so many people writing, you don't know, they can call anything a farm. And I'm like, if we aren't factual in our arguments, we weaken our arguments. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, no, totally. It, it, it does no good for us to engage in hysterics. Um, you know, like, and this is why, you know, like when I talk about food safety, um, I think we can show factually that a local food system with direct-to-consumer interaction and transparency is safer than, than any industrial food system. It doesn't mean that you're not occasionally going to have a bad producer or you're not occasionally going to have somebody get sick. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we, we, we need to on multiple levels not play into their hand by making absolutist claims either direction that can't be supported. Um, you, you know, so like our buying club, um, there's just a mom the other day asking, should I be drinking raw milk while I'm pregnant? And, and she will get a good informed discussion about relative risks and, you know, like, and, and we encourage people to take responsibility for themselves, get educated factually, and then make decisions they're comfortable with. Um, it, it does no good when we say raw milk is magical. It'll never ever yeah. make someone sick. Yeah. You know, and it'll heal every disease under the sun and you'll live to be 300 years old. Um, you know, that's just as bad as the head of the FDA saying drinking raw milk is like playing Russian roulette with your life. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, when they, it, what gets me is they have a, a pus count that they're allowing into the milk that's being, and that's like, there's a little bit of pus in there, that's okay, but our, you know, raw milk is, 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 is dangerous. And, but, but you're, you're correct. And there is, there is a lot of that on, I guess you'd call it the, our side, but there are people that don't really think that they are on our side because they're not informed either that are making these claims. Like, you know, another example is I, I saw someone making a big deal that was doing, uh, yogurt under, uh, cottage food that was saying it was from raw milk. Well, not really. I mean, if you make yogurt, you're heating it to 160 degrees for 10 minutes. It, it really ain't raw milk anymore at that point. So and it makes me think of like we're playing their game and we shouldn't because you see all the time chicken raised without hormones and then in the fine print it says hormones are illegal. And yep. it's kind of the same thing. We need to be above board in everything that we're doing other than, like you said, we got to operate in some gray areas to get by with the government. But when we're talking to our consumers, we don't need to be making outlandish claims. And when we're resisting you know, encroachment by government, I think if we would have had a resistance – that was going after food safety modernization on the actual problems 
versus hysteria from people like, you know, Alex Jones. They're going to take away your gold. <laughs> but we didn't have that going on. People that the reasonable people might have listened. But as soon as people looked at it and went, there ain't nothing in here about a garden, they tuned out because this is the fundamental weakness of our people. We can only be angry about one or two things at a time. And so all the media has to do is misdirect you with something like, gee, we got along somehow without all this fuss of uh, gender-neutral bathrooms for 240 years, but in 2016, <laughs> suddenly it's a problem. And you watch Facebook blow up, and everybody's mad about that. Well, if there's a weak argument for a real issue, that's easier for them to do. So we need to be strong and factual in our arguments, and that's something that I've seen you guys do over and over again. And I did manage to finish my membership application while you were talking, so it is easy to join, and I recommend everybody do so. Great. And I sent you a link just, you know, for homesteaders or farmers who are like, why would I want to be a member? Um, it's a link to a story from some of our members, the Bailey family in Maryland. And basically, they're members of Farm to Consumer. They got a phone call from a regulator who saw a picture of their farm on Facebook or something and based on a picture was going to shut down their farm. And, and and the Baileys called the hotline, and and one of our attorneys, Pete Kennedy, you can read the story, and and it'll show you all. This isn't how every story works out, obviously. Sure. But but this shows what a difference it makes being a member, because all it took was a phone call from Pete to, you know, basically stop this small farm from being railroaded out of business based on a picture. That's awesome. That I mean, and that's again. I mean, I hate to put it this way, but a lot of people in these positions, these bureaucrats, they're bullies. They're people that have worked themselves into a position of power, and they are probably people that didn't have power throughout their life, and now they got power, and they're going to go out and use that power. And most bullies don't stand up really well once they get punched in the nose, and once they find out, I'm not just dealing with some person that doesn't know their rights. They've got a team behind them. You know, not every time. But sometimes they will back down and move away, and that's that's a big part of what you guys are doing. So I'll make sure that links in the show notes uh, for today's show. And and John, thank you for being with us. And if you want to come back, just fill out the app again, and and we'll uh, we'll get you back on the air because I love talking about this issue. Great, thank you, friend. I hope you have a great day. We are done, dude. Great. Well, I'd love to chat some more. Um, I'll send you an email, Curtis, and a few other people said depending on your schedule. You might be interested in August. Joel Salatin does a like a, an event for us at his farm. Yeah, and it's August nineteenth, and it's basically all crazy people like you and I, okay, <laughs> who believe we should be free to raise and sell food, and people buy it from us without government interference. Um, and so, if you've ever wanted to see Joel's farm and see a bunch of other people who are like minded with us in these areas. Um, it's one of the few times a whole bunch of us get together. Um, so, so I'll send you some details, but for the moment, I got to go sell some worm compost and get to a doctor's appointment. Cool, man. I got to get this uh, up. This should be up in about 20 minutes. I'll send you a link by email so you can share it with your buddies. Excellent. Thanks, friend. All right. Take care. What a great interview with a great guy fighting the great fight. Uh, one of, I, I really believe this is one of the great battles of our lifetime. 
You know me on politics. I'm politically an atheist when it comes to politicians, but I, I do believe in fighting for our rights and getting government out of our business wherever and everywhere possible. And this is a place we actually can make a difference. And if, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? If, if we don't stand in this fight for our freedom to choose what the hell we eat and who the hell we buy it from, America... Do you think our children will know to do so? Will our grandchildren be able to, 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 to stand at that, at that point in their lives and fix what we let go bad on our watch? I don't think so. Keep that in mind. As, uh, I have a, a plan for a song today that, that harkens back to the revolution. But it's a modern song, and it doesn't really harken back except a little bitty piece of it. But to me, it's an important piece. Before we hear that song, let's go ahead and uh, remind you, if you like this show and the work I'm doing, you can help support me by joining the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more um, about how you can become a member. And uh, it's 50 bucks a year or $5 a month. And yeah, you can try it out for 5 bucks a month. And if you don't like it, if you don't think it's worth it, cancel. In fact, I'll tell you what. I've never had anybody do this, but if you sign up as a member and you look at all the discounts that are in there and everything you get, you're like, this wasn't worth it, cancel, send me an email, I'll give you your money back. I've never refused to give a refund ever on MSB. I'm just saying. Um, so it is a great deal. You can support the show, and with the discounts, you will have a membership that pays for itself. There's another way you can help support the Survival Podcast, and God, I wish I would have set this up eight years ago. I really do. Because uh, it's gone really well since I have. But many of you shop on Amazon every day, especially if you're Prime members like me. Well, if you go to TSPAZ.com, you will redirect to Amazon. You will then shop on Amazon like you do all the time. You won't have to do anything different. You'll type one less letter in, but you'll be going through our Amazon affiliate link, and you'll help support our show. Please consider doing that the next time you need to buy something on Amazon.com. And ask your friends that are concerned with liberty and freedom to consider doing the same thing. Next up, um, I do want to remind you about another way you can do business with our community. That's the TSP Business Directory. You can go to tspbiz.com. It'll redirect you to that page on the website where you'll find a whole bunch of companies that are uh, listed there that are all people that have set up businesses right out of the TSP community. This is the TSP Nation. We should do, be doing business with each other first is how I really feel. Today's supporter of the TSB Business Directory is Stark Laptops. They offer flat rate repairs plus parts and shipping for any Apple computer. You can visit the TSP directory or go to StarkLaptops.com for help with any la Apple computer needs. They also sell refurbished uh, Apple uh, laptops as well. Uh, so if you need a new uh, MacBook, you know, Macs are, man, I'll tell you, they cost more because they're worth it. Uh, but you can save some money and get a completely rebuilt one at Stark Laptops. So, uh Definitely a place to look to save money and do business within the community. And hey, you're saving a computer from a landfill. I'm just saying. All those rare earth elements and everything that had to be mined for that thing to work. Better that we uh, keep them running as long as possible. And now our closing song today is uh, by Aaron Lewis. He's one of my favorite modern country uh, singers. Um, best known, I think, in this circle probably for the song uh, Country Boy. Um... But this song does harken back to the revolution that we're covering in history segments right now. That's why I chose it. It's called Massachusetts. And I want to give you a, a, a couple 
Lions had a song to listen to and maybe take it in a little bit differently than you would if you just heard the song. It's a it's a really pretty song, and you, you realize that this isn't just a, a country singer that can you know play the upbeat stuff. He's a talented musician and a talented vocalist. But there's a line in there he says, uh, But the North Shore is where my father lives. I wear my Red Sox hat around the world with pride. I don't really care about that, but I get it. It's important to him. He says, But the Berkshires are where my heart is, and when I see them in the distance, I could cry because I'm home. Okay. Hold on to that for a second. The Berkshires are mountains, for those that maybe don't know. Um, here's another stanza from the song. So I just passed the sign that welcomes me to Worthington, established long before this country came to be, a place that hasn't really changed with time, the way this country that I love it used to be, because I'm home. Sadly, there is some truth to that, but there's a lot of not truth to that today. Massachusetts is the birthplace of the revolution where we decided that we would stand as states united against the tyranny of Great Britain for our own freedom. And of all the states out there that are doing things that are tyrannical against their citizens with excessive taxes, excessive gun control, excessive regulations, Massachusetts tops the list. But in the small towns outside of where the Red Sox play, where people still live the way they used to, those people don't really agree with that, and they are held there because it is home, and they love it. While this song is about Massachusetts, as many of you know, I grew up in my teenage years in the mountains of Pennsylvania, the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania, specifically the mountains that I spent most of my time on. We're in a little area of small wilderness we call Blackwood, Sharp Mountain, Second Mar Mountain, Pine Hill Mountain. Those are the areas, Peach Mountain, that I spent my time on, Gordon Mountain. These mountains mean to me what I think the Berkshires mean to Aaron Liss. Get back to that area of the country. I haven't been for a long time. I do feel like I'm home. But I won't live there. I won't live there because much like Massachusetts, Pennsylvania has decided that it is going to tax its citizens into oblivion. It's going to regulate its citizens into oblivion. And Pennsylvania also is a huge part of the birthplace of the revolution. It's where, it's where the Declaration of Independence was signed. And these two states and many up around them have fallen so far from that spirit. It's sad, but it's a reminder. It's a reminder that just because something is at the center of a revolution doesn't mean it will stay at the front of the fight that comfort and complacency can regulate any group to a point where they're no longer willing to fight for freedom and they will choose not tyranny over freedom, not safety over freedom, but comfort over freedom. This is the crisis we have in America today. We don't just want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. Americans want to be comfortable more than they want to be safe. That's why they get violent when you speak the truth, because the truth is uncomfortable. That's why they're clamoring for more regulations to protect us from things like, God forbid, milk that came out of a cow and wasn't somehow sanitized by some piece of equipment first. That's why, not safety, but comfort. And if it can take a place that means as much to me as the mountains of Pennsylvania did and make it a place that I'll choose not to live, what does that say? What does it say 
that will choose comfort over liberty. We have a heritage. I believe we have a heritage that is greater than that. And I believe that we should stand and we should fight for our freedom, for the freedom of our children, and for the freedom of our grandchildren. Think about the revolution. Think about the history segments we're covering. Think about the things you heard today about threats to our freedom to choose our food and who we obtain it from as you listen to this song. And remember, it really is a place that was established long before our nation came to be, and yet they've embraced the very things that our nation stood against in its formation. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
established long before this country came to be. A place that hasn't really changed with time. The way this country that I love it used to be. Because I'm home in Massachusetts. Cause I'm home